Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. For anyone who's either had kids or been a kid in the past 54 years, you probably know the name Judy Bloom, but she's the first to admit she's not comfortable with her fame. I don't know how to do it, and I'm not used to it. I'm used to being a writer locked up, you know, at home or in my bookstore. But when it comes to talking about her readers, Judy practically gushes. Kids opened up to me in a way that I think they felt they couldn't to their parents. Dear Judy, I'm in fifth grade and developing. It is kind of embarrassing. Without your books, I would be nowhere. I mean, it's just so much easier to open yourself up to someone that you're never going to see. You know, it's a stranger, and yet it's not a stranger. You feel connected to this person. That's Judy in a new documentary about her life and her epic contribution to literature for kids and adults. The film by directors Leah Wolchok and Davina Pardo allows us to see what Judy does best, connect with her readers. I felt very much a kid, and I identified very much with with kids. That's why I don't, you know, but some of us always are like that. I still, I identify with kids. When I meet a four-year-old in the store and I look into that child's eyes, there's a connection. Leah, Davina, and Judy join me for a conversation about book banning, the importance of reading, the fate of libraries, and the role of parents, all of which Judy has passionate opinions about. When I asked her why make a documentary and why now, she gave me a typically Judy Bloom answer, heartfelt, funny, and uncomfortably honest. And it was just like, you know what? Somebody's gonna do this after I'm dead. I might as well do it now and try to set the record straight and be honest and open as I could be. That was hard. You know, it's easier to be honest and open with your writing than it is when somebody's making a documentary about you. Especially about your whole life, which you must have felt watching it was flashing before your eyes. And you were very honest about your personal and professional life. But first, I'm really embarrassed to say and admit this and ashamed on some level, ladies, that I did not grow up with your books, Judy. And when I think about it, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, came out in 1970 when I was, wait for it, 13 years old. The year, incidentally, I got my period. (laughs) So that is my confession. But I feel a little bit better knowing that Leah didn't grow up with your books either, Judy. (laughs) I know. And I've been embarrassed. This is the first time I've had to talk about this in front of Judy because 
I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida in the 80s and a time when Judy's books were seen as taboo and inappropriate and naughty. And there was a lot of shame surrounding periods and puberty and sex. And I was a shy, flat-chested 11-year-old good girl who didn't want to do the wrong thing. And God, I wish I had. I had heard about this book about a girl who wants to get her period. And I thought, I'm not going to read that book. I can't read that book. I shouldn't read that book. And I didn't. And I'm so angry. And my, my mom has reminded me, I did not keep that book from you. I did not restrict anything you read. It was sort of the feeling in my school, in my community, that it wasn't okay to be learning about your body in that way. I mean, we were passing around flowers in the attic in fifth grade. That was the book that we were all passing around. Why was it okay for us to be reading flowers in the attic, but not, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, about a girl who is exploring her friendships and her relationship to God and her spirituality and her parents. And of course about her body too, but it's about so much more. I, I wish, I wish I had read it as a kid. Having said that, was it helpful at all, Leah, having some emotional distance and being introduced to the material for the first time as a filmmaker? I think we needed that objectivity for sure, because everyone else working on the film was a major fangirl. So I felt like an embarrassed outlier at first. And then I realized, okay, it's helpful to have someone who doesn't have that deep childhood nostalgic connection to Judy's books, but who's discovering them as a mom. And as an as a grown woman, Judy, I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but honestly, <laughs> it was so moving and so cool. What a tremendous impact you've had on so many kids and parents, I think. But I know the documentary really focuses on your ability, Judy, to honor kids. And you even say when you started to write, you only identified with kids, not adults. Why do you think that was the case? I, I, I don't know. I hadn't grown up. I mean, yes, I was married. Yes, I had two children. But I, I think I really hadn't grown up. And I felt very much a kid. And I identified very much with, with kids. I still, I identify with kids. I was going to ask you, Judy, what is good parenting of a child in a bookstore? What kind of things do you observe and think, ah, that's right. That's what you should be letting your child do. Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> let's say the child is in middle grades, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Um, I, I like it when the parent stands back and lets the child explore by herself and find a book or helps a child understand you know, this is what I do. This is what I tell kids about finding books. So many kids come in and they just want the familiar. Oh, I know that. That's Captain Underpants. I'll take that. And there's nothing wrong with Captain Underpants. I love Captain Underpants. I sell a ton of Captain Underpants. But I like saying and hearing you say Captain Underpants. But go on. <laughs> I like Captain Underpants and I like Dogman. And I like those books and I like selling those books and I'm glad that kids are excited about those books. But I also would love kids to explore more books. And I think 
loving a certain book will help them do that. But when a parent says, no, you can't have that book. You've read so many of the, you just keep reading those books. I want you to read a real book, meaning not a graphic, what we call now a graphic novel. And I wish parents would not be judgmental. I guess that's what I'm saying. Don't be judgmental of what your kids want to read. Give them more freedom and be less helicoptery, I guess, too, right? <laughs> you talk about being an anxious child and feeling like adults were, quote, keeping secrets from you. So do you think that feeling influenced your impulse to be so radically honest in your writing? Probably, yes. You know, when I was writing, let's be honest here, I didn't know I was being radically anything. I did want to write honest, truthful books for kids. But I don't think I put myself into that, you know, saying I'm going to be radically different. I never thought about that. I only thought about, will somebody publish this book? But yes, I hated secrets. I deeply hated family secrets. And it wasn't just that I thought things were being kept from me. I knew things were being kept from me. And what I made up myself when I was a kid about what they might be keeping from me was far worse than what they were actually keeping from me. And you were very young. Weren't you very young when you got married, Judy? Yeah, I was 21. That's what we did then. You know, as my mother said, if you don't find him while you're in college, where will you ever find him? And I knew I must get married and have babies. That's what I was supposed to do. Getting married when I graduated from college was the last thing that I wanted to do. I wanted a career. I wanted to have mobility and flexibility. And I didn't want, honestly, a ball and chain dragging me down. Is that terrible? That's great. It's great that you knew that. I really didn't know that was a possibility. I just didn't know. I, you know, was trained to be a teacher. I remember interviewing for teaching jobs and and then I was pregnant. And so, you know, that had to be put off and put off and I was pregnant again. And so I desperately needed I desperately needed creative work. And you needed something to call your own. You're very honest, Judy, about the eventual strain and distance in your first marriage. In some ways, do you think that disconnect allowed you the emotional space to write? I feel like I have Judy on the couch, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> it came from inside me. That need was inside me. And I had to find a way to let it out. And I was sick a lot in my 20s, physically sick and with all kinds of exotic illnesses. And once I started to write, they magically disappeared. How fascinating. It makes you wonder how much stress and sort of repressed creativity was causing inner turmoil and resulting in you being physically sick. You know, you you started writing and man, I think about a lot of authors who just get rejection after rejection after rejection. I mean, you got some blunt and pretty brutal <laughs> letters from publishers, which I think must have been very hard to take and, and demoralizing. But then, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, 
It just changed everything, didn't it? I mean, thank God you wrote that, not only for the world, but for yourself, because it it opened doors that had never been opened before. Yeah, but the first thrill really was the first book and then the second book. You know, I'm being published. I'm being published. And I like to say that it's determination as much as talent. And I really believe that. If you're turned off by the first few rejections or the first bad reviews, you know, maybe that you're not going to make it just because you're listening to those other people. So you have to just keep going. And my, it was only two years, which maybe, maybe it sounds like a lot, but it wasn't a lot. And I feel that I was getting better during those two years of rejections. I'm curious, Leah and Davina, did you think, wow, the opportunities for women back then were so few and so many women did feel repressed? I had no idea what a trailblazer Judy was in all parts of her life. I think when I started this project, I knew the I knew the work was trailblazing, but I didn't realize that throughout her life, in small ways and in big ways, Judy was sort of pushing back against what was expected of her. And that was that was relatively new. And I see, I mean, I've heard Judy talk about the Margaret movie and how it part of the reason why it's taken so long is because the right people had to grow up and be in positions of power and say, yes, we're going to do this movie and we're going to do it in the right way and here's the right person to make it. More with Judy, Leah, and Davina after this short break. If you want to get smarter every morning with a breakdown of the news and fascinating takes on health and wellness and pop culture, Sign up for our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, by going to katiecurric.com. We're back with Judy, Leah, and Davina. Judy, it's amazing, isn't it, when you think back about how prudish we all were and how uncomfortable we all were for so long, and in many cases still are, when it comes to having sensitive conversations or when it comes to talking about our bodies or talking about our sexuality or talking about something as basic as your period, right? It's just so embarrassing. I remember my mom talking to me about my period on our way to, I took piano every week at Mrs. Richmond's house and my mom would drive me in our station wagon and she said, and even then it was so uncomfortable. (laughs) And then I think I got a book in Girl Scouts that I still have in my sentimental box that my daughters think is so funny, like on becoming a girl or from girlhood to womanhood or something like the Kotex had had produced. Why do you think a lot of people were, and in some cases still are, so uncomfortable talking about these things? I don't know, because it's personal, it's private. This was never my experience. I was never embarrassed about it and I love talking about it. I didn't talk about it with my parents, but I was lucky to have this group of friends and just like Margaret's group. And we talked about it endlessly for one year. I think we were all obsessed. And then mm, we let that go and went our own ways, even though we we didn't all have our periods at the end of that year. And our breasts hadn't yet developed by the end of that year, but it didn't seemed that important that we had to talk about it. There 
there were then boys to talk about and other things. It's so funny how different our experiences are. I I was mortified. It was so uncomfortable. And I really didn't want to get my period. I mean, I was that kid who got their period really early and was so ashamed. But, you know, there's just such a range of experience always. I think there have always been girls who hated it, girls who dreaded it, girls who wanted it more than anything. And, and I think the beauty of Margaret is that even though most of the characters really want it, there's still so much empathy for all all experiences. I think Davina and Leah, one of the most moving parts that adds a whole new dimension to Judy's story is your decision to focus on the correspondence she kept. Thank God, not only did she correspond with her readers, but they were all kept and donated to Yale. When you learned about this treasure trove of children in their most vulnerable states, reaching out to Judy. Honestly, I get almost tear up thinking about them. Uh, You must have done a happy dance, right? I knew that Judy had received letters over the years. And the first time we met, I found out that you had these long-term relationships with some of the letter writers. And pretty soon after that, I I remember walking away from that lunch thinking, I have to go to Yale, where Judy's archives are, to see some of these letters, which are very strictly protected. It's not it's not so easy to kind of walk in and get get your hands on them. But I was able to go visit and spend a day looking through some of the letters. How many are there, by the way, Davina? Oh, gosh. it's I mean, it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Going back to 1971, when the paperback of Already There, God, It's Me, Margaret came out. That's really when the letters started. So boxes and boxes. And the depth and range of the letters. I mean, it's everything from sweet, cute, funny to serious cries for help. It's such an outpouring. And it it just says so much about what Judy's work meant to kids. And then the fact that she wrote back, of course, I think says so much about her as a person. Did you did you write back to everyone, Judy? How did you find the time? No, I, I couldn't write personal letters to everyone. But I like to think that I wrote back in depth to the kids who needed me most. I, you know, I call them the special letters. Who would qualify as a special letter writer? Well, the two women that you meet in the movie certainly did. They're grown up now with their own children. But, you know, I've I've never lost touch with them. So that goes way, way back. I think they were 12 when they, oh, Lori was nine, I think. And, and Karen was 12. But there were so many. There's a young man who you don't get to meet because he's no longer living. He was so troubled and so depressed and we wrote to each other for years. And George and I actually on a book tour were able to meet him and have dinner with him. And he had a grandma who was a psychiatrist, but eventually no one could save him. He took his own life. That was terribly sad. Leah, when you saw those letters and the relationship that Judy forged, especially with the two people who are featured in the documentary, um, that must have been incredibly moving, inspiring, and meaningful, not only for you to witness, but for the arc of the documentary. 
It was so moving to discover those letters and to discover the depth of the relationship that Judy had with Lori, Kim, and Karen Chilstrom, the two women that we ended up meeting. When we got to hold some of the letters that Lori and Karen wrote to Judy, it was, we felt this release of emotion because the vulnerability in their handwriting, in their words, in the stationery even, and the way that this you could tell there were still creases in the letters the way it was folded so carefully and put in an envelope. It was, I think we felt some of the responsibility, one small part of the responsibility that Judy must have felt responding to them because we had a responsibility as filmmakers to honor their stories and allow them to tell their stories in a way that they would feel good about. And for Karen, she hadn't told her story publicly ever about what had happened to her the sexual abuse that she had experienced as a kid and the trauma that she had experienced as a kid. And so Judy was one of the only people she had told. And this experience of participating in the film was really powerful for her. <laughs> I I just have to say that, you know, I have two favorite parts of the documentary and that's one. And I think that Leah and Davina did the most, gentle, kind, generous interviews with them. I, I think they've just done a beautiful job with that part of it. <laughs> so, I mean, that and, and what they did showing censorship in the 80s. We didn't know when they were making this film that, you know, it would come back to this, but that now... In 2023, we would have censorship issues that are even worse than what we had in the 80s. And those two parts of the film, because it's hard for me to just look at my life, but but those two parts of the film really get to me and make me so grateful to them and so glad that I said yes. It does feel like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra said, and I want to just briefly mention what happened after Forever was published in 1975. After the election of Ronald Reagan, you say that, quote, the censors came out of the woodwork overnight and burst onto the stage. I know that Randy, your 14-year-old daughter, Judy, encouraged you to write the book that would perhaps be your most controversial called Forever. Just take us back to what it was like when suddenly you were the subject of censorship. Well, yeah, that was very hard. I felt, I felt alone. I felt dejected. I, I, I mean, I didn't know where to turn. It was a very difficult time until I found the National Coalition Against Censorship, or they found me. I still don't know how it happened. But I became active with them. And I think that, you know, Always, this is true, doing something, doing it makes you feel so much better than just being sad on your own. You know, so many school libraries didn't have their policies in place and parents were running in and saying, get rid of this book, get rid of that book. They were waving them around and people were frightened and they did it. And I think a lot of us, including me, really thought we have come through this and we will never 
go through this again because we are America and we do celebrate our freedom to read and to choose and to learn and to question. And no one is going to take that away from us again. But guess what? You all know this. Here we are back only worse because now it's the government. Forever was banned again in places like Utah and Florida. And Leah, when you see what Judy went through in the 80s, because I think she was ahead of her time in many ways, but you see this kind of happening again now. What are your thoughts? I'm infuriated. I mean, at first it was shock and disbelief, and then that turned into rage and fury and now action. I mean, St. John's County, Florida, right next to Duval County, where I grew up and where my best friend still lives and where my brother still lives, forever was just banned again in the last couple months. Judy's books are still being banned, but for the most part, the books that are being banned now are books by authors who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, or authors who are queer, trans, you know, they're writing these beautiful characters and stories and characters who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, characters who are queer or trans. And those are the books and those are the stories and the characters that are being taken off the shelves in those communities, those exact communities where kids need to find stories about themselves because they might not have other kids in their classrooms who are like them. Why are some topics still so taboo? We'll talk about it when we come back. It's almost here. The NYX anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. 
It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Judy, Leah, and Davina. Obviously, I've been covering all this book banning and the culture wars that really are erupting, I think, in Florida almost more than anywhere else because of Governor Ron DeSantis. But just to ask you a question, I so appreciate, Leah, having a diversity of authors totally. But something struck me in the documentary, Judy, when you talked about age-appropriate material. And I guess that raises the question of talking about gender identity or sexual orientation. Is there any problem with introducing these concepts to kids when they are in kindergarten or first grade? I don't know how this would be introduced to kids in kindergarten or first grade. In my bookstore, I have a lot of books that are wonderful. There's Justin is a Mermaid and Justin at the Wedding, and those are gorgeous picture books. Um, and there is no reason in the world, I think, why they can't be read, because it's not like kids. Today, we're going to study gender dysphoria. I mean, it's just not like that. And there's another one called Prince and Knight, where the prince and the knight wind up together, and they're Beautiful, wonderful books. And recently I read, um, I took it home with me from the store to read it. The most banned book in America at the moment is called Gender Queer. And it is such a good book. I couldn't believe, you know, I cried. Nobody is going to read this book to first or second graders or third or fourth graders. It is high school, middle schoolers, adults. It's a wonderful graphic novel. And when I finished it, I handed it to my husband, George. I said, read this book. You know, it doesn't take very long. He read the book. He felt the same way that I do. And the idea of taking this book away from people who could read it, you know, if you're not interested in it, fine. It, but if it speaks to you personally, and it spoke to me personally actually, even though I'm not going through this, because it was so well done. But I, I think that kids, if they pick up a book and they're not interested or they feel uncomfortable, they put it down. And adults don't have to worry if it, if it speaks to them and they say, this is me, this is me. How great to find yourself no matter what it is. It's done wonders for sales, by the way, but that book getting banned. 
the people who are buying that book are probably in more progressive communities where a kid could find themselves within their community and might have other resources. But the books are being taken off the shelves in communities where kids really need the book. They really need to find the book where no one's buying the book. So I just wanted to make that distinction. It was a distinction that Alex Gino actually made at a panel that they did with a few other authors from the film with the ACLU. Just mm. that this the spike in book sales happens in progressive communities and not in the communities where the kids really need the books. But book banning all comes down to fear. Parents fearing what their kids might learn, might think about, and might talk about. You know, there is so much information for kids out there right now online. They can find anything they want, anything destructive. I mean, things that information that might not be accurate, that might be entirely inaccurate, it might be destructive to their identities. But I think she was describing this phenomenon of parents having a sense of a loss of control of what's happening in their kids' lives. But books feel tangible. They feel like something parents can still control because the internet is way too big to control and they know their kids are online all the time. So they can easily brown paper bag a shelf in their kid's classroom or lobby their school libraries or their community libraries to take the books off the shelves because they're, you know, bound paper that you can physically hold and physically remove. But how can you take the internet away from your child? That's so, so true, Leah. I mean, it is that fear of loss of control. What can I control? The question about age appropriateness is, I mean, it feels so disingenuous to me because you've got kids in your class who might have gay parents or who might themselves be gay or thinking about their gender. And whether you talk about it or not, sexuality and gender identity are part of the conversation. It's so important to just be open and honest about who we are. And and I think there's this desire to erase certain groups of people in our country right now that's really frightening. And so when we say we can't talk about you know, that this is inappropriate, you're actually saying who you are, your existence makes us uncomfortable and we won't acknowledge your identity. When I see people, me, Judy, and cry, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after reading the books, it, it drives home for me. It's so profound to see how a book that you read when you were young stays with you, carry it with you your entire life. And, uh, and that we are denying that. We are denying kids that opportunity to find that, that book. It shapes their worldview too, right? And I think these ideas and otherizing other people begin very young and are handed down from generation to generation. So the way we change hearts and minds, I think, is by talking to kids openly and honestly when they're young enough to receive it without cynicism and with openness. Yeah. It sort of all goes back to some of your first questions to Judy about secrets, about her not liking the secrets, the family secrets that were kept within her family. And now that secrecy has evolved into this cultural secrecy. Judy was feeling so frustrated about when she was a kid and knowing there were things that adults were keeping from kids. That's exactly what's happening now, but it's being sanctioned by the government. And so that idea that we shouldn't learn our personal histories, our family histories, and our cultural and national, our country's history, the truth, the reality. We used to say knowledge is power. And they're saying knowledge is dangerous. So you know what, Katie and my good friends here, we have to keep speaking out 
And we have to, I think, join forces for, for people who really want to do something and don't know what to do. Read about the organizations that are working to protect our right to read and our rights to know and our freedoms and join forces with them. Join with National Coalition Against Censorship or PEN America or ACLU groups that Leah and Davina have been talking to. Because once you do that, it will be just like when I found out in the 80s, it feels good to know that you're not alone and you're working with other people who believe what you believe. We asked people on social media for questions for Judy. We got a ton. Amy wanted to know who you read growing up. I loved Maud Hart Lovelace, um, who wrote the Betsy Tacey series. And it's not surprising to find out that many writers of books for young people Women especially also loved Mark Hart Lovelace. Elaine asks, will you be writing any books for adults again? I loved Summer Sisters. Well, then Elaine, I don't know if you read In the Unlikely Event. That came out in 2015. Yes. And I said at the time, um, this will be my last novel, my last long book. It was five long years sitting alone in a room writing it. And I believe it's the book I was meant to write. It just took me 40 years to get to it. So, no, I'm not going to write any more books. No, I'm very busy. You know, I have a bookstore, and I love that. Who doesn't love Judy Bloom? At least after preparing for this interview, Judy, Lee, and Davina, watching the documentary, reading about Judy, watching... Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I cannot tell you how many loyal, loving, steadfast fans you have. You've changed so many lives, Judy, and done such important work for so many people. Thank you so much, Katie. I never think of those things, but I appreciate hearing it from you. Thank you. Lee and Davina, congratulations on the documentary. I can't wait until the world sees it. Thank you all for spending so much time with me. Leah, Davina, and Judy, it's been a real pleasure for me and such a treat. Thank you for having us. It was so fun to talk to you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Katie, so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have a question for me or want to share your thoughts about how you navigate this crazy world, reach out. You can leave a short message at 609 512 or you can send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Next Question is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. Our supervising producer is Marcy Thompson. Our producers are Adriana Fazio and Catherine Law. Our audio engineer is Matt Russell, who also composed our theme music. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to the description in the podcast app or visit us at katiecouric.com. You can also find me on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 
Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care and we'll see you there.